Well, welcome to the More to Story podcast. I'm so glad that you have come along. We have a great show for you today. The second time that this guest has been with me, it's truly an honor for me to have him. But before I do, I want to make sure you know that this podcast is brought to you by Wesley Biblical Seminary, where I work and serve as Vice President for Academic Affairs and teaching theology and preaching. We are developing trusted leaders to serve faithful churches, and we are so excited to announce that the Global Methodist Church, the group that's emerging from United Methodism, has just recommended us as one an approved institution for that denomination, and we are starting a course of study program for people who are working through ordination in the Global Methodist Church, and we would love for you to think about our seminary, which is fully available online, but also has an in-person function that's available for people in the Jackson Mississippi area. So we are training trusted leaders to serve those faithful churches all around the world. We'd love to be engaged with you in that process. You can find out more about Wesley Biblical Seminary at wbs.edu. And I'm also thankful to Bill Roberts, who's a sponsor of this podcast. His financial planning firm works with people to help them develop a plan to get to retirement. Um, and he's particularly gifted with helping people who are in ministry, who are thinking about housing allowances, and maybe people who don't think about the stock market very much. So I encourage you to check him out at williamhroberts.com. You can find a link to him in my show notes. And finally, I have a resource available that I would love for you to have. It is called um, Contender, and it's a, a going deeper into the little book of Jude. It's six sessions, 30-minute sessions for a Sunday school class or a small group to work through the 25 verses in that little book of the Bible, which I think are incredibly powerful for our time. And so this is a kind of an online course. It's available for people with discussion guides. I'd love for you to check that out at andymillerthe3rd.com. And you can find out more about the things that we that I have from my website there, some other free resources. You can sign up for my email list at andymillerthe3rd.com. All right. Well, I am so glad to welcome into the podcast Dr. Oz Guinness, who's an author of more than 30 books, and he is celebrating the 50th anniversary of a book that have come out with IVP, and I'm so thankful to IVP for sending me a copy of his recent book, Signals of Transcendence. Oz, welcome to the podcast again. Well, thanks, Andy, for having me back. Well, but I'll just highlight one thing. I've I've uh, reshared one little clip from the last time when we talked. We were talking about the Magna Carta of humanity. Um, that was a, a great conversation that influenced my life. I'm just thankful that I had that conversation, much less to share with other people. But I've shared this story many times, and some people will know where I'm going. I said to you, well, Oz, you know, in this time, like where we are with a variety of things related to the sexual revolution. Some people have said, um, well, you know, faithful Christians disagree. And before I could finish saying that statement, you said to me something that has, I, I don't think will ever leave me. You said, faithful to whom? And uh, it, it was a key moment. So thank, thank you for that. that. That's a part of my preaching, uh, in, in my preaching bag at all times now to tell that story of you. <laughs> well, thank you. That's a key issue in our today's world. Isn't it? Well, I, I'm really thankful for this book. Now, I've read a variety of your books through the years. And of course, as I said, we talked about the Magna Carta of Humanity. But this book is a little different. And I, I encourage people to pick it up from IVP. It, it, it's shorter, but it's also something I think that people could use in a devotional capacity. But Signals of Transcendence, Listening to the Promptings of Life. Oz, what's led you to take this a slightly different approach with this book? Well, I actually have two books that are rather like this together. Okay. You know, I got the idea of the signals of transcendence from my 
mentor and then friend, Peter Berger. Okay, yeah. He wrote a book in the 1960s where he had a chapter on this. And he was arguing that almost everybody has profound experiences in life. And what they do is two things. First, they puncture whatever people believed up till that point. And two, they point to something which, if true, would make all the difference. So people are so profoundly touched by these experiences that they become searchers. They want to see where the signal leads to. Mm. I've got 10 stories. There are no arguments in the book. 10 stories of people who all became searchers and seekers and eventually finders too, but because of the signals that struck into their life and went beep, 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 and they listened and followed. Yes. And, and to me, the those of my audience will, will are often connected to the evangelical Wesleyan denominations like the Salvation Army, evangelical Methodist denominations like Free Methodist Church. We often speak in the language of, of we use well, what John Wesley called provenient grace. And of course, he didn't invent that term. But there's like this idea that God is at work moving ahead of us. Sometimes it's called the grace that goes before. And I love how you find these little traces. Like you said, these beep, 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 these pieces that are out there in front of people. Do you have, is that a concept of provenient grace or common grace, one that you, you had in the backdrop of this book? Well, obviously, that's the biblical roots of it. And you have notions like, say, eternity in our hearts, as the Bible yeah. puts it. Or the negative side, Paul says in Romans 1, you know, the creation speaks to everybody, but right. people hold the truth in unrighteousness, or they suppress the truth. In other words, the signals are there, but many people simply don't listen. So these are stories of 10 people who listened and followed the signal. Yeah. Oh, this is is really interesting. And you 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 highlight a few times there's there's reoccurring themes that come up. Um, but but Leibniz's idea of the question, why is there something rather than nothing, seems to be something that comes up on a regular basis for these folks as they're as they're on their search, as they're discovering these signals. Well, if you think, Andy, you know, most of us ask a lot of questions when we're kids. And our kids ask us questions. Daddy, why this? Mommy, why that? But when we become adults, we stop asking questions. Life is too serious. We don't have the time. And we shut out, in effect, wonder and curiosity. And of course, if we're living in cities, as most of us do in the modern world, we're living in a totally man-made artificial surrounding. So we don't even have the glories of nature Right. To speak to us and give us a sense of wonder. So these experiences are all the more important. You know, again, Peter Berger, my mentor, says the modern world, world of cities, the world of the social media and so on, is a world without windows. Mm. In other words, traditionally, you didn't have to be a Jew or a Christian. You could be Hindu, Buddhist, follow witchcraft, whatever. The unseen was not unreal. Yes. But it's almost a feature of our modern world. What's unseen? Unreal. So it's what you can touch, taste, see, weigh, calculate, measurable wow. outcomes. Right, sure. It's what's real in our modern world. But of course, that's not the truth. You think of Elisha and his servant, the servant panicking because of the enemy army at the gate. Elisha says, Lord, open his eyes. And he sees the horses and chariots of fire around mm. and so on. 
So a lot of people have a shrunken uh, consciousness. Or to put it in classical terms, you know, Plato gave that wonderful parable of the cave. Right. And humans are like prisoners in a cave in the darkness. Reality for them is the shadows flickering on the wall cast by a fire behind them. So that when one man escapes the cave and sees, my goodness, sunshine, yeah, sunlight, and comes back, they don't want to listen. Mm. They prefer the reality they know. Or they think he's a madman. And that, in a way, is like our modern world. And people need to be woken up. And these signals of transcendence do that. But we should tell the stories because it's the stories that make a difference. Absolutely. This is so interesting. And I, I, I do appreciate the way that throughout the book, you bring those same themes back in. For instance, regularly, you kind of take us back to Plato's cave and, and how you just very clearly connect us to the idea. Like, for instance, like when you're talking about Chesterton, you like kind of highlight that was that moment where he comes out and he gets a glimpse of the sunshine. So I, I love the way that you methodically unfold that idea throughout this book. Well, Andy, for a simple reason, you know, we, we who are followers of Jesus, you and I are, obviously your seminary is, you know, my esteemed ancestor, Arthur Guinness, came to faith through John Wesley. Yes. And I think I told you I have his autograph on the wall behind me, the rarest wow. of my 20 or so autographs. But you think many modern Christians live like functional atheists. They're almost atheists unawares. So we have words like prayer, the mm. supernatural, but they don't have actually that much reality. Whereas our sisters and brothers in Korea or Kenya and so on, they have a living and awareness, as you, of course you have in the pages of the Bible. Our Lord's ministry would be unthinkable without the power of the word, the power of the spirit in healing, deliverances, speaking, and you name it. And yet that's missing in much of the modern church. Mm -hmm. You brought up your, uh, your great, great grandfather. Uh, when we talked last, I was just starting out on some research into the founding of the Salvation Army on, on William Booth. And since that time, um, I've come upon a Guinness from who is helping out quite a bit, your relative as well, helped out and worked together with the um, Earl of Shaftesbury, Lord Shaftesbury. So hmm. I was, I've been, every time I see that, I, I put in the margins and I come upon his name quite a bit, who's financially in, engaged with William Booth in the early days. I say, Oz's great great grandfather. <laughs> no, no, William Booth and uh, the Earl of Shaftesbury and D.L. Moody. Uh, it was my great-grandfather who knew all of them personally, Hudson Taylor. Wow, interesting. And, and you think of all those things happening from England in that period. I know it's another subject at the same time. And I hope we can get to talk about not just your great-grandfather, but your grandfather who's mentioned this in, in this new book. Um, okay, so let's hit the, the first one was really interesting. The first story you tell is of Malcolm Muggeridge. And now I'm I'm fascinated by him because it, it was really before my time that he was active as a journalist. And I didn't know a, lo a lot of I, I knew some of the things that he had done in his research into communism and the kind of investigative reporting he had done. That's kind of like a part of history books. But I didn't know the things he did in highlighting Mother Teresa, really, until I read your book. Um, but you but you show how he looked throughout his life 
for all kinds of ways to find meaning. And he came to a clear point when he had his signal of transcendence. So to tell us a little bit of that story of Malcolm Muggeridge. Well, remember the Muggeridge first. I mean, he's a lot older than I was. And I, I knew him when he was an old man and I was a student. You know, he went to Cambridge for three years and considered the worst three years of his life. Education didn't interest him. He was the first to go to the Soviet Union and see through Stalin. Hmm. The New York Times, most Western intellectuals believed Stalin. Muggeridge saw through it, was totally disillusioned with politics. And then he went to India for a number of years in order to pursue, quote, religion. And after his experience there, he was disillusioned with religion. So when World War II broke out, he had nothing left in which to believe. And he was seconded to the intelligence service in East Africa, monitoring German shipping. And one night, in total despair, with stale beer and cigarettes all over his bed, he said, I realized there was one death in World War II I could make sure of my own. Mm. So he decided to commit suicide, went down to the beach, took off his clothes, swam out. He thought drowning would at least not embarrass his family. But as he was going out, suddenly he looked back over his shoulder and saw the lights of the little town and the little cafe behind him. And for the first time in his life, they struck him as home. Mm. In this crazy, absurd, meaningless universe, there was home. Mm. So he turned around and swam back. And it was like the light breaking into Plato's cave for him, he says. But then he had to set out on the search, what could be the ground for the meaning of that? And that was decades later that he came to faith. But the signal, that sense, home Amen. in the universe made all the difference and turned him round. So the signal is not the finding, but it's the beginning of the search that is all important. Yeah, so this that's the that's the key point I picked up from him. It's like sometimes it can be frustrating to not get people to maybe cross the line to realize what the signal is pointing to. But this shows the importance of these specific moments. Like, and we you know when God's going to use us in those moments. But it was several years before he came to to a place where we would call him a Christian. Is that yeah, right? That's right. Yeah. Decades. Now, tell me a little. I didn't realize that you knew him. Did you have any, uh, tell me about your interaction with him. Did you engage him much or did, I'm sure there's some interesting well, stories. Invited, he like a character. He invited my wife and me down to his home and gave me a blurb on my uh, third book. And he, a wonderful man, wonderful mm. man. Was he teaching at the time or was he still doing reporting? No, he was a journalist always. He wasn't a gotcha. teacher. Now, it's, it, he's the one who was able to highlight the work of Mother Teresa through a documentary. I don't, I don't know if you know much about that. I mean, I that's not something that's familiar with me. I didn't know. Honestly, I thought maybe it was through some of her journals or just an awareness. Was it his work that brought her into prominence? It was his documentary, Something Beautiful for God, for the okay. BBC, that put her on the map. I mean, she was known only in Catholic circles before that. But, you know, he was an expert on television. He was a television personality. But he said that, that the faith fits the radio well. It doesn't fit television well. Interesting. He said the great exception were the people who are really saintly, 
like Mother Teresa, because something about it came across unmistakably, even on television. Now, as television's appearance-based, image-based, and radio is word-based, the faith comes across much more easily on the radio than the television. Mm, interesting. I've never heard that. Never heard that, that like that was his insight, particularly. Interesting. You also highlight your mentor, Peter Berger. So what was what was his signal and how did he respond to that? Well, he has one chapter in his book on about six or seven or eight signals. But the okay. first one is the one that means so much to many people. He takes the simple, almost universal cry of a mother in the night. Baby wakes up crying, distressed for whatever reason. Mother picks it up and consoles it and comes and says, says in so many words, it's all right. Everything's going to be all right. Everything's okay. Now, Berger points out nothing could be more quintessentially human. Hmm. But if you think about it for a minute, is it true? Or is it a lie, even a well-meaning one? In other words, the universe is not all right. Yeah. At the end of life, the child will die. And before that, the mother will die. And many others will die. In the meantime, the universe is not okay to human beings. It's not going to be all right. Well, what does that mean? Why can we, how can we say that in the face of the real reality of what life is about? And he explores that, and people who follow that through start thinking, why do we implicitly say that? Hmm. We believe there's meaning and order in the universe, and it's not random, absurd, and so on. It's it's not something for us to to create or to like you know shape ourselves, but there's something out there. There again, like there's something coming from outside of us that directs us and leads us to this. Well, it makes it makes sense if the Lord is there, if God is there, it makes sense. You know, I for instance grew up my first ten years, as you know, Andy, in China. Right, right. With war, literally millions killed around us, and then a terrible famine. Five million killed in three months, including my brothers. Mm. And we were there two years under the reign of terror, the beginning of the Maoist revolution. But never once in those 10 years as I grew up did I see either of my parents, despite the loss of my brothers, ever mm. waver in their faith in the Lord. Why? Well, you could boil down my father's attitude like this. God is greater than all. The Lord can be trusted in all situations. Have no fear, have faith in God. Now, of course, that's the Christian assumption, the Christian claim, the Christian belief. But when someone says, yes, it's going to be okay, they're assuming something. What are they assuming and pointing to? Mm -hmm. Wouldn't be so. If, if Richard Dawkins is right, the universe is, quote, a stroke of dumb luck. Well, you can't comfort a baby in the night with stuff like that. No. Right. What does it assume and require if yeah. true? Yeah, it's like you can't see a mother saying they're a baby. You're just a cosmic accident. Good yeah. luck. Yeah. <laughs> no, there's something more. Okay, I want also, I wasn't planning to talk about this chapter, but I, I th you said this is one that most people have been interested in. It's titled Heart Cracking Goodness. What's behind this? It's actually, well, that one too, but it's the one before that. Okay. With W.H. Auden, the English poet, one of the great poets of the 20th century. Okay. 
So when Auden left Oxford University, he was a hero to many young people. He was an atheist and he was gay in a time when that was not fashionable. And he was a radical left winger and he fought against Franco in the Spanish Civil War. But then when World War II was looming, he came across to the US with his gay lover. And you know, in those days, no television. So how did you follow the news? You went week, apart from the radio and the newspaper, you went to the Pathé documentary in your local cinema. And he was in the Upper East Side of New York. Now this is 1939. So America was neutral. The Brits were fighting the Germans and the Germans, the Brits, Americans were neutral. So the Germans in America supported Germany and the English in America supported the Brits. Well, he went to a cinema and one night the documentary was on the siege of Poland and Nazi stormtroopers were bayoneting women and children brutally. And the German crowd right through the evening cried out, kill them, kill them, egging on their own side. And Auden in five minutes, he says, sitting in the dark, he said his whole worldview was turned upside down. Hmm. First, he knew we humans had evil in our hearts. He always thought we're basically good. A little better politics, mm. education, psychology, if you need it. We were basically, no. We, and he said himself included, there was evil in the heart. But then the real problem, if he wanted to say Hitler was absolutely wrong, evil, mm. where was the absolute? Because European intellectuals had thrown all absolutes out. That's for old fogies. Mm. But this wasn't relatively wrong because he was English as opposed to a German. This was absolutely wrong. And he said later, he left the cinema a seeker after an unconditional absolute wow. in Jesus. Now, do you see there that it punctured his old views, pointed to something which would have to be true if it was meaningful. So he became a seeker. And in his case, it wasn't very many weeks or months before he came to faith. Now, as some of them, C.S. Lewis, for instance, it was more than 10 years between the sure. signal and the discovery. So you have this, yeah, but the puncture, the signal, the discovery. These, the, the, and exactly. and the, the puncture and the signal come together, right? Exactly. The signal punctures the old worldview. And yeah. in our world today, you know, it was the first step in the search is always a question. A time for questions. Yeah, sure. That's what constitutes a seeker. People are satisfied, complacent, convicted, or whatever. They're not searchers. But when a question strikes in, and in this case, it strikes in through signals, then they become seekers. Now, it's only the beginning of the search, but it's the important beginning. And with many people today, they don't even get that far because they don't have any questions. You know, it's interesting. Uh, one of my mentors tells a story of the this like puncturing sort of moment and, and trusting that the Holy Spirit is leading people on these paths. He he was talking about being on an airplane one time, and finally he was in his conversation with a, a man who was had just intellectual questions about God, and he was really getting to a place where he felt like he was going to have a breakthrough. And then just about the place where he was leading to a point of decision, the airplane stopped and like they landed and they were going to be done. And 
the my mentor this is a uh, said this is dr dennis kinlaw a lot of people's mentors by the way he said um he prayed in that moment god i was just about to convert this man and he felt the holy spirit say to him i thought i was doing a pretty good job until you showed up <laughs> yeah like we are always the junior partners in witnessing the holy spirit is the is the great one and when we're with people, we might be with them five minutes, five hours, five days, five years. We're only responsible to take them as far as that time will allow. Mm -hmm. So the idea that you've got to get from A to Z in five minutes is ridiculous. And the trouble with that is you often leave people as burnt over ground. People have tried to get them through the one, two, three, four laws or whatever in 10 minutes. And they brush it off, and it's, it's not sure. genuine. They're burnt over ground. Far better to be true and witness to them to the level that the time with them that you have allows. Mm -hmm. Yeah, absolutely. What, what else happened in Auden's life? Where did this? Where did his? Uh, you know, actualizing the signal and receiving it. Where did it take him? Well, he became a well-known Christian. All I have to say. He kept uh, on being a gay, and he admitted he was extremely inconsistent in that all his life. So, mm -hmm. you know, many Christians have huge flaws, like David's adultery. Mm -hmm. um, w. H. Auden, you know, kept gay lovers even after that, knowing that it was wrong. But he was decidedly and very clearly a Christian. Mm. I loved your chapter on G.K. Chesterton, and I've been on my own journey with Chesterton. I had, yeah, I read novels in college, um, the detective novels, particularly The Man Who Was Thursday, you know, really made a deep impression on me. And then um, I read Orthodoxy early on, and then just a few years ago, got into the short essays that he has. Um, and I, I found this interesting connection too, but one of the things about him that always draws me in is his ability to look at the smallest details and again, try to find wonder. And you describe his moment, his time of, of being punctured and the, the signals that he received. Tell, tell us about that. And I'll, I'll let you talk about the, the chapter title too. Well, I have Chesterton's autograph behind me on the wall too. Oh, man. And you can see he, the signature has a flourish as his writing does, as his clothes do. He was an artist, and what a character he was, a volcano of words. Now, Auden grew up in a very comfortable world, upper middle class in West London in the late 19th century. And when he got to college age, all his friends around him went to Oxford and Cambridge, but he was artistic, so he chose to go to the Slade School of Art in London. But you can only say it was rather like the sort of postmodern climate today, debunking, cynical, nihilistic, negative. And Auden admits he was really flirting with a lot of dark thoughts, including the occult. And he had drawings and sketches that were very much down that line. But he says later, what stopped him in his tracks was a dandelion. <laughs> now that's extraordinary. In other words, yeah. A weed, but a beautiful little weed, the dandelion. His point being that the world he saw was broken, mm -hmm. ruined, dark, pessimistic, but there was beauty. And he had to explain not one or the other, but both. How come there's brokenness 
how come this beauty? And as he was searching, and it was some time, he describes in orthodoxy, as you know, his intense excitement. And it's rather like Archimedes crying Eureka and leaping yeah, out of the sure. bath. His excitement, uh, Chesterton's excitement, as he sees the Christian faith is uniquely bifocal. It explains the good and wow. the bad, the beauty because of God's creation, and all the brokenness because of sin. And then he says it's as if all the nuts and bolts begin to fit in, click after click after click. He sees it's true. And that signal, stopped in his tracks by a dandelion, is what leads him on later to his profound Christian faith. Mm. Uh, in, in the idea of a dandelion, of course, um, you can think your first view of a dandelion as a child, like is how regular it is, like uh, for my kids to pick a dandelion and take it to their to my wife and say, here's a flower for you, but not realizing that it's also a weed. Like it's it's both these things. And that's what Chesterton has such capacity for describing and elucidating paradox. And so in that moment, he found that paradox, like something beautiful, but something wrong, but yet finding order. Um, I think it's interesting to, I'm, it, I, I tried to read in, in that journey, my Chesterton journey, so to speak, in my 20s, I tried to read The Everlasting Man. And honestly, Oz, I just, I was lost. I just couldn't do it. And um, I'm trying to read it again now. And I think I'm doing a little bit better. I'm making my way through. But you describe how this moment for him, you, you, it, he describes it in the last chapter of his autobiography as the God with the golden key. And just earlier this week, I read in The Everlasting Man, he talks about how the 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 church is built on the image given to Peter of being the, the rock, but also there's the idea that the church holds the keys to the church, to the, the, the keys to the church and to orthodoxy. And he uses the image of a key regularly. So I thought this was really interesting. I hadn't read his autobiography. I didn't know, hadn't known this, but he describes like the key is so important because it's a strange shape. It doesn't do anything. You'd never guess what it would be except for it brings everything together. And I think that's, that's what's interesting, like connecting to your book is like in this moment and in this idea, in these paradoxes, he sees how everything comes together. Yeah, but mainly the faith is the key. Mm. In other words, you're thinking of the meaning of life. How do you put this incredible universe together? So here we as human beings, we created the cathedrals or Mozart's incredible sonatas, and we produced death camps. It's the same mm. human beings. And some of the guards at Auschwitz went home and listened to Beethoven in the lunch hour. Wow. What explains this incredible paradox of our greatness and our loneliness? Anyway, he's saying in all these questions about life, faith gives a key that fits the lock. So you want to open the door, but put in the other keys, atheism, Hinduism, Buddhism, whatever. Mm. They don't open the door. They're not the right key. They're the wrong key. Wow. But the faith that the Bible gives us opens the door. Yes. Oh, I love it. I love, too, some of the quotes that you bring in at the end of that chapter. Um, not, not him mentioning the direction of thanksgiving that thanksgiving needs to be directed someplace so you say um you quote him saying the chief idea of my life he wrote is the practice of taking things with gratitude and not taking things for granted uh, line. i love it 
again, because he was so aware of the simple things and how wonderful they were. I can't remember the exact quote. I think he said something like, if I want my children to be grateful for putting things in their stockings on Christmas Eve, am I not grateful to the Lord for putting my feet in my socks daily or something like that? Yeah, that's right. Yeah, I got it right here. Uh, you, uh, if my children wake up on Christmas morning and have somebody to thank for putting candy into their stockings, have I no one to thank for putting two feet into mine? <laughs> he was so aware of the gratitude and wonder for simple things. Most of the time I find myself uh, as I'm you know, reading him, uh, like having to go back and read paragraphs three or four times, but then also uh, laughing. <laughs> and then I love the endings. I love how I, I just know as I'm getting to the end, there's going to be something clever and fun, like that statement that you just highlighted. Now, there's other chapters here. I'm going to just tell people to go buy the book, right? And these, these are chapters that you could probably read in a, in, a, in a sitting each for a devotional period. I, I really recommend it. And of course, one of the great things IVP does, they have a great, uh, it's just a beautiful book too. It looks great on the page. Um, mm -hmm. uh, I was glad I got to the chapter about your grandfather. And uh, hearing a bit of, of your story last time, we talked about the Magna Carta of of, of Magna Carta of, of Humanity. Sorry, I couldn't think of the end of it. Um, hearing about China, tell us about your grandfather. And this is a great way that you're able to lead us to think about love as one of the, these transcendent signals. Well, I think love is one of the most powerful, deep and rich ones of all. Now, the last that chapter of my grandfather, he was not a seeker. He was actually a missionary. Mm -hmm. He survived the most horrendous dangers in the Boxer Rebellion in China when 2,000 Christians were killed in a couple of weeks, including many, many of his friends. And that's the story in itself, and I tell the story in the book, as you know. But it was at the end of it, he met my grandmother, who was a beautiful young Swedish aristocrat. Of course, you think of your grandparents, you know them when their gray hairs are gray or whatever. When they were young, 18, 19, 20, 28, they were beautiful and strong in their time. And my grandmother was quite a beauty. But anyway, we have on another wall, not so many feet from me, the Christmas card that my grandfather gave to my grandmother the first year of their marriage to one who is dearer than life with a love that is stronger than death. Mm. Because they had been through that extraordinary experience of the Boxer Riots and survived by the skin of their teeth when people died all around them. And they realized what love meant in the face of death. Now, that's not the experience of most people today. But here we are in our Western world, in America. On the one hand, we've cheapened love with endless cliches in Hallmark cards and so on. And even worse, on the other hand, we have cheapened it and degraded it with things like the hookup culture. Mm -hmm. So love and lovemaking and all that is still surrounded with so much that's tawdry today. And yet, and yet, no one who's been in love cannot be moved by what love says. And so I quote the uh, pop song, you know, if love is not forever, what's forever for? Mm. There's something about love that yeah. knows its transience, but knows it longs for eternity. Yeah. Now, you follow the sort of questions that love raises, and I raise a lot more in the chapter that I'm doing now. Where is it grounded? Yeah. 
Is it a sheer accident, Richard Dawkins style? There's no answer to love in Buddhism or Hinduism. Freedom for the individual in Hinduism is freedom from individuality, not freedom to be an individual. Where's it? There's no greater, deeper, richer grounding than the Jewish and Christian understanding of the God of the Bible, who is love. Right. And of course, the members of the Godhead love each other before the world began, and so on. You have the deepest grounding, but of course, anyone, and people don't when they're in love, there's, listen to the signal of love. It points, punctures all the cheap views today mm. and points to something which, if true, would be incredible. But how do we know it's true? Well, we do when we meet Jesus. Another point is connected to um, the everlasting man. Sorry, I can't get it out of my head. Uh, it, he, G.K. Chesterton talks about this moment where so often people will like the side of Christian faith that is love. So this, he'll say, oh, well, God is love. God is love. Is it, that's, that's what I believe. Not any of this you know, terrible stuff that come, you know, comes from scripture or the Christian tradition. And he says, well, when we're saying that, we're pointing to something else. Right. This is that God is love necessarily means that that love is directed towards somebody. And then then he points to the the personhood of the Trinity and the three distinct persons undivided in their essence. And like this in itself, like even that characteristic, even that we experience in this life, then is something that is a signal in itself that we even long for this. It's part of how we're created. That's right. Well, Oz, what do you hope happens from this book? What, what do you want it to do? Well, it's a book I hope that Christians will read to understand how this happens, but a book for Christians to give to their non-Christian friends to challenge them, don't say that, but to challenge them basically to start thinking and searching. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, we haven't talked about the chapter on Kenneth Clark, the great art historian, And it describes a number of experiences of a signal. And the main one being when he was in Florence looking at paintings, he was overwhelmed with a sense the finger of God had touched him. His Mm. word, mine. And it stayed with him for three months. Uh, And then he brushed it off because he went back to London and owned up to that. People would think he'd gone crazy. Or we now know through his biography, he had a mistress at the time. Would have been a little embarrassing. Anyway, he brushed it off, although he came back to faith later in his life. But here's the point. That story of his experience in Florence, a number of my friends have picked it up. One shared it with a group of CEOs. And he he just asked them, had any of you had experiences like this? Mm. He thought maybe one or two would. Out of a group, I think 25 or 30, all but one or two had had similar experiences. But of course... People don't have the categories to start thinking it through. So I hope the book will just launch people out to thinking and caring and searching. So it's a book to give. It's, you know, there are books that you read a chapter or you read a book. They're all an argument and you either accept it or not accept it at the end. No, that's not my book. Mine right. is a description of the journey. People have to get the point and start the journey for themselves. Right. It's not an argument in the book. It's a series of stories of people who heard the signal and followed it until they found. I love it. 
I saw this is another subject away from the book, but I think it might it is connected. And it's a way that I think maybe some of us who saw some online activity that you had uh, with a, a group of people talking about the exodus, um, you're around a round table at the, the Daily Wire and uh, Jordan Peterson is leading a conversation. And I think probably a lot of us uh, who have, have heard a bit of the th type of things he said, you know, hope that it's many times it sounds like he is like this this man is not far from the kingdom of god i'm i'm, I'm curious about um that conversation you had and and i was so glad to see you around that table could you tell me a little bit about it well he invited me to join because he someone told him i'd written on exodus and uh i was glad to two separate weeks it was enormous fun very stimulating some wild ideas came out and there were atheists and Jews and various types of Christians. It was a fascinating time. And Jordan is definitely moving. Yeah. He's a dear friend. He's definitely moving. So it was enormous fun. As you know, I think Exodus is the master narrative of Western freedom. Mm, mm -hmm. And we Christians don't understand the greatness of this book. Right. I um and I really appreciate it. You you pointed me several years ago. I um I sent you an email trying to figure out um you alluded to something and it was a Alazar, Alazar. I'm maybe not saying his name right, but you you wrote me an email right back and I couldn't believe it actually came from you. And and I think I've been really influenced by this idea of the democratic realities that we experience being based in covenant theology. Um no, that's right. As Daniel Elisar. Elazar, oh, forgive me. Now, now, if you think we're all caught up with the Greek categories, monarchy, aristocracy, democracy, but that's governments. Elazar said, no, look at societies. You have different three. Some are organic. They're related by blood and kinship, like an African tribe or a Scottish clan. Most societies are hierarchical, like, say, China today. In other words, based on power, a kingdom, an empire structure, hierarchy. The third type is the rarest, covenantal, based on a common binding agreement of the people, we the people. And of course, the first great one are the Jews. Exodus 19, the covenant at Mount Sinai, and then the Swiss, and then the Americans. So the Jewish notion of covenant became the American notion of constitution. Mm. Sadly, mm -hmm. people don't understand it. We're now almost at a broken covenant or something that's so shriveled, it's very easy for people to neglect. But we as followers of Jesus need to explore the biblical roots of these things because they are the secrets of proper freedom. Amen. And we should be the guardians and champions of freedom. Absolutely. Well, Oz, thank you so much for your time. It means a lot to me that you come on, and I just encourage people to check out this book from IVP, Signals of Transcendence. And you can find links to that and uh, to, to information about Oz in the show notes. Thanks so much for coming, Oz. Thanks, Andy. My pleasure. <laughs>